0: All right, Philip. We are live, or Philo, You like to be called, is that right? Philo, yeah. That's, that's a cool. That's a good one. I like that. Cheers. Um, so thanks for having me out here. No,
1: no, worries. I'm happy
0: to contribute my brain to your uh, scientific progress. I it's should probably appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Uh, happy to contribute. I should probably tell the listeners what we did exactly. So uh, I'm here in your lab at University of Sussex, and uh, I basically put on a a, a head cap that had a bunch of electrodes.
1: Is that what you would call it?
0: Yeah, no. so what we Plitter. did
1: is um, some brain stimulation, where I measured your brain activity with an EEG cap and electroencephalogram. And what it does, it, it has 64 sensors on it, and they all measure neural firing, um, aggregate neural firing distributed across your skull. Um, and then at the end, when I have collected all that data, I can do some pre-processing and they can create some models of how your brain operates and they can reconstruct some, you know, brain dynamic responses to the stimulation that you underwent.
0: Right. So I had this cap on that had a bunch of, uh, let's just say receptors, uh, tracking a bunch of data for you. They are
1: sensors. So all they do is read. Yes. They don't put anything
0: in your brain. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, um, trying to paint a great picture for the listeners. So have this cap on that's tracking all this data into Phyllis' computer, and then you're basically just flashing lights into my closed eyes. Right. Um, so I actually wanted to ask you, because my eyes were closed, so it wasn't exactly obvious Mm -hmm. what exactly was happening, um, the lights that you were flashing, were they, the color wasn't changing, it was just a a regular color, right? Right. A a constant color. Constant color. But it was flashing on and off, Mm -hmm. um, pretty rapidly. Yeah. Right? Um... So, my one of the questions I had that it wasn't obvious to me was, were you flashing the lights into my eyes at a rhythm that's, like, uh, technically tuned to the waves that you're trying to produce in the brain? Mm-hmm.
1: Is that right? Um, in this case, no. In this case, I oh, no. a fixed frequency. Um, to give a bit of a background to brain stimulation and rhythmic Please. manners in, you know, in a general sense... Uh, if you backtrack a little bit to the very early onset of brain stimulation research, so that was of course something that was of primary interest to military institutions because they wanted to figure out a way in which they could you know increase performance of soldiers or um, make them more effective at carrying out certain tasks, so for example, for a certain time interval, increase their their visual vigilance mm-hmm. um, or to increase the speed at which they would acquire a new motor skill. Um, and one of the areas that was investigated first in, well, 19, I think 23-ish, but then it uh, really came into focus of research in the 50s, um, was light stimulation. And that was... In some sense a consequence of soldiers driving through forests and as you probably have made a similar experience where light comes in through the forest leaves Hmm. of the trees right Mm -hmm. and then as you drive through this light that comes through creates flickering effect and some soldiers had an epileptic fit in consequence and Hmm. then the question was well what exactly caused this and how can flickering light actually impact brain activity, and that fit in right with the general research objective that I outlined before about how brains could be potentially stimulated, how we could change activity in a very targeted manner. Um, And one of the most seminal works on this topic was undertaken by Walter Gray, who um, looked at a new technology back then um, at EEG. Um, in order to track electrical activity in the brain, just as I did with you, in response to the visual stimulation. Um, And what he found is that if the lights flashed in a manner which was roughly in line with a targeted frequency band, um, in terms of your neural firings, um, then the brain would start to dance in tune with that rhythmic stimulation. And to briefly explain uh, explain the brain rhythmic firings Mm -hmm. um, that you have to understand to realize how this could happen in the first place. Mm -hmm. So the brain is a rather complex thing, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And information has to be transmitted from one part to the other in order to, well, make anything happen, really. And this information is carried in electrical pulses. And these electrical pulses, they work in different rhythmicities. So, you know, these on-off switches, they have different rhythmicities to them. Um, And if these rhythmicities are in line with rhythmicities of the environment, then activity in that segment is boosted after a short while. So, essentially, you could think about it as you sitting on a swing, and I'm behind you, and I'm pushing you whenever you come close to me in a certain rhythm, and this will push you higher and higher and higher. Um, And of course, in this allegory, it's kind of obvious that when I push is important, right? Mm. So when I want to push a frequency band, it's not just about me being roughly in line with the stimulation and with your swinging frequency, but it has to be like perfectly lined up, right? Mm. So if I want to be most effective, what I would do is is I would keep my eyes open and see exactly how you swing and when you're closest to me. And then when you are, I would push in order Mm -hmm. to make sure you... The highest the next time mm-hmm. to increase your amplitude in that specific frequency domain. Um, but what I did today with you was a bit gentler. So today I just gave you a fixed frequency. I pushed you on the swing in a pre-fixed manner. So I didn't look at where you were. Oftentimes I was pushing into empty air and consequence. Mm. But even in that situation, if you think about it, after a while. Uh, if I push in a certain rhythm, always, no matter where you are in relation to me, at some point, your swing will synchronize with my pushing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that process is called entrainment. So that's that's how it works essentially. Uh, the the individual light flashes are me pushing you on the swing, and the motion that you have on the swing, the back and forward, that is the neural firing that I'm trying to stimulate.
0: Right. Great, that was a really nice summary of what you were trying to do to my brain. Um, Now, something you were telling me before we did this, but maybe the audience would find it interesting, is uh, what exactly was it that you were trying to induce? You were trying to induce alpha waves, is that right? Maybe you could tell us about that.
1: Right, so one um, category of neural fire rings could be classified as alpha, and this categorization has got back to Berger, to the very early days of EEG, Research, he actually invented that whole paradigm. And initially, and that's quite interesting as a side note, but not, not many people know this, I think, is that when Berger first observed the phenomenon that we could actually read the electrical activity of the brain through the skull, um, he thought that he had found a method of explaining telepathy, um, which wasn't the case. You probably thought it was
0: crazy. It, did that sound really crazy when he oh. sort of first floated that? Because it sounds kind of like cuckoo. It sounds yeah. really out
1: there. I mean, at the time, uh, and that was in the 20s, um, that wasn't a very uncommon belief to be held. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you go back to that time period, a lot of very, from the current paradigm, obscure beliefs were incredibly widespread as a reaction to you know the failing popularity or the falling popularity of... Classical religions, uh, they were in decline, so there was some kind of gap to be filled to explain the world. Um, So yeah, it probably didn't sound quite as crazy as it sounds now, but it was still a fringe belief. Um, But because these electrical charges are so minute, there's no way they could be communicated from one person to the next. Um, Even with the caps that I put on you, um, these incredibly sensitive instruments, even there, I can barely pick up a charge and I need to amplify it in order to read anything. Right. Um, so yes, that, that that didn't check out. But he classified these different rhythmicities of the brain into distinct frequency bands. And one of them was alpha, between 8 and 15 hertz. Um, and people, at the very beginning, when he first published his research, tried to figure out what the possible causal role of these oscillations could have been. Mm-hmm. But then that kind of fell out of favor and people just assumed it was random background noise. And only quite recently has there been a lot of research being done that pushed the narrative that, no, actually they are causal and they stand in relation to a number of different functions. And, um, of course, the number of frequency bands doesn't in any way correlate to the number of functions that are taken off by the brain. So usually um, one specific... Frequency band cannot be related to one specific function. Sure. With alpha, though, um, it seems fairly well established by now that it is one way that the brain inhibits activity of neurons that are related to tasks which are not in the current attentional focus. So, when I say to you that you have to focus on certain stimuli that I present to you, such as I did with the visual memory task, um, and other things were to happen right around you, um, Alpha would help you to filter out all those things you don't need to pay attention to, and fully devote yourself to the task at hand. So, because of this, Alpha is a very good predictor, that is, the Alpha Amplitude pre. Stimulus pre the task that I give you is a very good predictor of your performance, of your learning rate, um, of your score at the very end of some kind of working memory assessment. So, alpha kind of reflects reserved resources? Um, In a way, like not directly, alpha reflects your ability to inhibit data that is not task relevant. So, to not be distracted. Or inhibit activity in task relevant areas. So, by proxy, it would signify available resources, but it is not an available resource, but it's more of a break. You or think like, about it's it, like an
0: anti-distraction filter, Yeah, if of. you think
1: about it as a break on unwanted activity, then that's fairly accurate. Uh, and in consequence, it's, uh, I think, the closest correlate that we have to the construct of working memory, which is itself the closest correlate. Uh, to chi, there's this component in work memory called the central executive, and that's the closest c- correlate that we have to the idea of general intelligence. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, you could look at um, alpha activity before you give someone a task and just their resting state, and then make a fairly educated guess about um, their general intelligence.
0: Right, okay. So alpha, the alpha state reflects something like um, the ability to not be dedicating resources to unwanted tasks. Yeah. It's correlated, fair. With, it's correlated with what we think of as general intelligence. Yeah. And um, it gives and- you a lot of
1: information about how fast someone will learn something new, for example, okay. well. But then it's also important to say that alpha measured in different parts of the skull for, for certain, well, in some sense, a slightly different function.
0: Just real quick, to be yeah. clear.
1: So the alpha refers to the, elect- to the electrical waves. is that what well alpha is a name that we give a certain frequency band that we can measure right it's between 8 and 15 hertz generally speaking but um, if I were to measure alpha activity now it would be at one specific point between in the spectrum
0: but specifically when we talk about these different wave states we're talking Mm. about the electrical energy in my brain Mm. fluctuating in in these uh, frequency bands yeah is that right okay yeah okay Uh, just making sure I'm I'm getting it yeah you Um, got it Right. Okay. So, uh, and again, just to kind of be clear for anyone listening is, so this is what you're trying to induce with your light flicker treatment. Right. Um, so your working hypothesis basically is that by just exposing someone's eyes to a light Mm -hmm. turning on and off, Mm -hmm. even in just a fixed simple way. Yeah. Um you're going to uh, change the electrical current, the electrical currents basically in someone's brain. Yeah, you could uh, say that. pushing them. yeah, and I'm sure that's very informal well, and slacking lacking right. technical precision but oh, no, you're right. Uh, you can induce the alpha you can induce electrical waves in the brain to the alpha state, yeah, um, which so has these attractive properties, like being basically kind of uh, related to intelligence.
1: Yeah, essentially, you can think about it as a rerouting in resources. So the brain operates in all different frequency bands simultaneously, and what makes things work is the interaction between different frequency bands. But when I Mm -hmm. stimulate, say, your alpha frequency band, then you can see an increase in alpha amplitude to the... um, Well, this may to other frequency bands, so they will uh, undergo a decrease in relative amplitude. And then usually what happens after stimulation ceases... Uh, and this is something where I have contributed something new to the scientific literature um, is the brain will then post stimulation suppress alpha activity, so what I try to stimulate beforehand hmm. and what increase the amplitude during stimulation will go down thereafter, hmm. uh, and then it'll take a while for it to rebound, and when it does, it might go above baseline that is above the level of activity pre-stimulation, but then it'll find its way to the original level after a while. But there is a period of post-stimulatory alpha inhibition or suppression um, that follows the initial stimulation. And it seems to relate to the brain's tendency to want to keep things in homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a bit strange for the brain to be pushed into a new form of activity which is completely... Uh, at odds with how it did things right. up to this point. Right, okay. So, with lice, yeah. Heavily reliant on not just spotting regularities in the environment, but also operating according to them. And any kind of large um, discrepancy between past experiences and present experiences might be an error and has to be corrected, you know. And right. that might explain the post suppression
0: Okay, cool, right, so that makes a lot of sense. so basically, with this light flicker treatment, mm-hmm. you are able to uh, in in a short term increase the off state, yeah, and then right after it dips back down, even perhaps below baseline a little yeah. bit yeah then, e- then it, it equilibrates basically yeah. Pretty rapidly after the initial shock, but you are able to increase those alpha waves. Yes, um, in the short term, right after the treatment.
1: Uh, yes, um, but the post stimulatory suppression period is actually more. Well, it it can be more pronounced than mm. the uh, increase during stimulation, and it can last for quite a while, depending on length of stimulation as well. Cool, very um, cool. So, okay, so something I'm
0: I'm just remembering is that I believe, if I recall correctly. Um, the alpha waves are one part of the, this famous flow state that everyone seems to be interested yeah. in right now. right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. If I recall correctly, the flow state is sort of a combination of alpha and one of the other waves. Do you know much about that research or do you want to talk about that? Um,
1: I'm not an expert on the flow okay. state, yeah. uh, but I know about uh, its relation to alpha um, in the sense that, of course, if you are engaged in any activity which takes you up fully, it would be something that would be a result of you being able to block out things that are not relevant to the task, right? So the connection there is fairly obvious. Okay. Also, as you experienced yourself, when you are in a state of high alpha, subjectively, you experience Mm. it as being quite Zen. You compared it to, you know, going out of meditation when you.
0: Yeah. Right. I should share that with people too. You're right. So after I was, uh, subjected to this, uh, flickering light treatment, uh, I, well, in addition to doing some tests that you had me do, um, to test my working, my, my visual, my short term visual visual memory, right? Yeah. Um, I also, Philip was also, you were also, um, measuring my, my brain activity, Hmm. right? Sometimes I forget if I'm talking to you or to the millions of listeners. Um, (laughs) and I noticed just sort of subjectively that, uh, after the treatment, I definitely felt, uh, like in a calm Mm. state and it basically felt like after meditating for 10 minutes or whatever Mm. um so that
1: makes sense that's very consistent with what you're saying right yeah um there have been some really interesting animal studies of life stimulation last year Uh, one of them was uh, on mice with depressive symptoms uh, who received life stimulation in the same frequency domain also 10 hertz uh in order to combat these depressive symptoms. And they were compared to a group of mice that received antidepressants, um, but actually scored better in terms of their recovery. That was Hmm. quite uh, important. Similarly, there was another paper that was published in Nature, which used 40 Hz gamma stimulation to alleviate the symptoms of Alzheimer's successfully in mice as well. Hmm. Um, And they used, uh, I think, a couple of hours of stimulation over a number of days, so repeated stimulation, and actually found that the um, plaque buildup thereafter, once stimulation ceased, and they went back to examine the mice a couple of days later, um, was nowhere near the initial state. So right. there seemed to be a possibility for successful Alzheimer's treatment just with light stimulation, possibly even with people that would be the next big trial today. Well,
0: yeah, well, that's super exciting. So... Sort of stepping out of the data that you have and allowing yourself to kind of speculate a little mm. bit beyond that, I mean, what do you think are the more exciting possible applications of of this sort of light treatment like what what right. on on the higher end of what it could possibly do right what can you know manipulating light exposure? Uh, what, what do you think we could really get out of that if we were to get really kind of uh, creative with it?
1: So one thing that I'm doing right now as part of my PhD is that I want to create a system in which the stimulation is made entirely contingent on your brain dynamics. Okay, so,
0: right. So feedback. Yeah, yeah. Today
1: what we did is we had a fixed stimulation frequency. Right. What I described before where you could make it more effective is if I were to look at your individual alpha frequency, which would be anywhere between 8 and 15 hertz, I would pick that, and I would stimulate at that frequency to push you more effectively on the swing, right? Right. But because there's chitter in terms of where your IAF, your individual alpha frequency, is, the most effective thing that you could potentially use is to create a very fast feedback loop. And then make the stimulation dependent always on what right. you're is doing right now. So that's something that I'm working on at the moment. Yeah. And ideally, I don't just want to target it to one specific domain, uh, like alpha, but I want to make it dependent on like the wholesale EEG yeah, signal. Yeah. So I've, I've noticed that this is
0: sort of starting to become... You're, start, you're starting to see kind of consumer products like this for this sort of thing, right? I think they make... I don't know if you've seen these things, but I know they make... I don't think that they work super well yet. Is my impression. Although right. to be fair, I haven't really played with any of them yet. Right. Um, but they, they make like one. It's like a. I forget. It. I think it's a. It's like a headset basically, right. and I think it's like kind of entry level consumer level biofeedback. Ah, uh, okay. Um, yeah. I can't speak for it, but um, you're starting to see these sorts of
1: things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of biofeedback. I think it's a fantastic way of getting more insight into your body and mind, mm. depending on how it's applied. So you might be talking about Muse. That's an, I think that's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one is quite popular. Have you played with it? Um, no, I have okay. not, but I'm aware of it. So this is created by a company called Interaction. and to briefly explain what it is, it's a headset with a number of EEG sensors. It picks up your brain activity from, uh, well, mostly your frontal cortex, because all the <laughs> sensors are literally um, on your, on your uh, what is this called? Uh, forehead. Forehead. Thank you very much. Um, yes. So picks up all the activity exclusively from uh, your frontal cortex and then feeds it forward to your smartphone app, which then looks at your baseline of activity. I think for them, it's also in the alpha domain to check for relative levels of relaxedness. Right. And then it gives you a feedback. In this case, I think it's audio, audio feedback, um, which then guides you into a deeper state of relaxation. And this is very similar to what I'm doing on the side with my company. So to give a bit of a background, I created a company with a friend of mine last year, and we have been working together for half a year beforehand on my PhD project and then felt that all this technology is really, really wonderful, um, biofeedback and brain stimulation, and we then started work on a device that would allow us to bring that to the masses at a relatively low price. Oh, right, I forgot so, you are working on something like this. Yeah. So tell, tell us more about that. Right. Yeah. So the idea is, in concept, not too dissimilar from Muse, but they want to take it a step beyond that. So what Muse are trying to do, uh, or what Interaction is trying to do with Muse, is they want to give you a platform to increase your level of relaxation. Um, we think that the sensor placement that they chose for the headset isn't ideal for what they are trying to sell, but it's still a good start. Mm -hmm. Um, Besides from improving on the sensor placement to give you a better guidance to a state where you want to be, we also want to offer the means for you to train yourself to be more focused and to increase your level of concentration on demand. And we want to offer a very rudimentary brain-computer interface. Um, something that would allow you to control either a smartphone or a devices with That's awesome. your thoughts. That's awesome. So, initially, what we can do is um, monitor movement thoughts, which would be interesting for navigating through messages or apps that would be displayed either like in a VR context or in an augmented reality context, think like Google Class 2.0. But in the future, we are interested in moving even beyond that to offering means by which we could translate imagined speech or imagined imagery into input and then trans well, communicate that translation to others. Wow. So where are you
0: at with your particular venture at this point? Are you just sort of like seeking capital or where are you at with it?
1: So earlier this year we won a prize um, where we won a competition for most promising startup in the area, in the oh, C6 cool. area. Um, we are still developing the prototypes. At the moment we are... Uh, at a point where we want to nail both the relaxation, the focus enhancing, and the movement font. The other things, we have a partner that we're talking with to make that happen, Um, but it's a bit further off still. Because for that one, well, we do need quite advanced technology, which is not yet in everybody's hands, but smartphone tech will be there in a couple of years.
0: Okay, that's awesome. So uh, do you envision the light, dimension being the most important one or it are other dimensions like the sound dimension or because i know that you know i'm sure you're also familiar with things like uh binaural beats and <laughs> yes. this sort of these are there are other ways that you can try to entrain your brain so is yeah. that legit or is that not legit or what
1: um effect sizes are very small it's um mostly something you can ignore um I might not go as far as to say it doesn't work at all, um, because I've seen varied results coming from studies, but even the ones that show an effect, it's so small that it's not negligible. Okay. It's not something that I pay much attention to. Light stimulation is about on the same level of effectiveness as current stimulation is, which still means that it's a fairly small effect size. Okay.
0: Um, Do you happen to know why light can entrain the brainwaves, but sound doesn't work as well? Do you know why? I'm just
1: curious. Um... Well, my my guess would be is that even with light, it's dependent on contrast. So the brighter the lights in relation to the off state of the lights, the more effective it is at entraining your brain. With sound... If I pump my binaural beats up to the <laughs> maximum volume, then maybe? Possibly so. <laughs> I, I Nobody ever tried it, I think, uh, to study that in a very scientific setting. There's more studies on the influence of not binaural beats, but rather specific beeps in a rhythm. Hmm. So beep, 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 in their ability to entrain um, neural oscillations. Um, It might have to do with volume, but I'm not quite sure. I don't think that's it. I think there's something else going on that I'm missing here.
0: That's interesting. Um, Because I've messed around with that before. I never got too deep into it, Mm. but I I have played around with trying to induce states with binaural beats. Right. And I... Yeah, I never... I had... I never had any particularly clear successes. Yeah. Um, So that's interesting. So are there any ways that you can leverage this light treatment that you're studying right now Mm. um, in kind of DIY applications? Um, Yeah. You know, like going up to a light bulb and like opening and closing your eyes like (laughs) a
1: million times in a row. Um, So because luminance is so important in the effect size of light stimulation, you would have to build yourself... An LED array with high luminance LEDs okay. and then create software for it or make it hardware based for that method It lets them flash at a specific frequency. Okay. Um, if you just want to enhance your of calmness, it's perfectly reasonable to just let it flash at 10 Hz, which is roughly accurate for most people. Most people tend to cluster around that frequency. So you could
0: feasibly even get just like a, a flashing LED light from like IKEA or something like that if you could get it to a timer of a certain amount of time sure. and just look into it yeah, and get the effects that you basically were able to produce on me today?
1: Um, I mean, what we had here was uh, one of those high luminance LEDs flashing with perfect precision at 10 Hertz.
0: Okay.
1: Um, if you do it yourself, it's not impossible though. Like, <laughs> then yes, you could probably get similar effects. Uh, if I would have made it dependent on your brain activity, then the effects would have been much greater. That has been shown with other participants before you in other experiments. Okay. Um, and that would have been hard to replicate unless you have access to um, an EEG headset like the Emotive Epoch. That one is quite okay when it comes to you know, cheap entry-level EEG headsets. Um, but yes, it would have been a bit more difficult. Interesting. Interesting. And I wanted to say something about brain stimulation, neurofeedback, and the like. Mm -hmm. So before we talked about the Muse headset, which used this audio feedback mechanism to guide you into the state of calmness. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a bit more interesting uh, for consumers than brain stimulation techniques are. So in this one, it's not about... Well, with neurofeedback in general, it's not about forcing your brain into a certain state, but rather to give you a means by which you could consciously self-regulate your state. So if you, and that's something that we are working on with our app, look at your phone and we show you, say, an ocean environment with wild waves, it's quite stormy and you hear the waves and your earphones as well and then the phone application tells you to take a breath and just calm yourself down and as you calm down the waves come down right. and the sky clears up and the storm grows quiet. Then you get this audiovisual feedback that tells you you're doing it right. And as you get this further awareness of what it feels like to consciously calm yourself down, you learn that skill to apply it whenever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really exciting. Whereas with brain stimulation, you are still very much reliant on having the technology at hand. And then you're also messing with very complicated brain dynamic um, well, features of the
0: brain. Yeah, right. You don't just want like a machine to manipulate your brain. You want to be able to train yourself to do these things consciously with some sort of uh, machinic assistance. Perhaps. I think that will appeal to a broader sort of people. Um, also, it's just it's cooler to be able to gain a command over your own. Yes. Um, yeah. You know. processes. Oh, no. absolutely. Absolutely. That's, absolutely. That's more attractive than just having like a tool to. Do it to yourself.
1: Like, really effective brain stimulation, if you um, use magnetic waves, for example, that would require um, a specialist um, helping you out with that, plus the right. equipment is really expensive. So, uh,
0: with the stuff that's currently available is the Muse, is that kind of the best one? Or are there other better ones if people wanted to... Because I'm kind of curious to I'd mm. be curious to try these things.
1: Uh, yeah, when it comes to newer feedback... Um, The Muse is a good starting point. Also in terms of just aesthetics, I find it quite pleasing visually. Um, But no headset that I can think of comes anywhere close to the quality that I'm getting here with the equipment that I've used on you today. Right. Like nowhere close. Yeah, I imagine.
0: Yeah. How long do you think until that type of quality becomes available
1: widely? Well, in the last... Well, pretty much ever since EHE was a thing, we've seen very little improvement in terms of hardware quality available to consumers. Um, I think this might change, though, in the next couple of years, because at the beginning of this year, we saw an increase in both public interest in brain stimulation and also investment in brain stimulation technology. Um, Elon Musk, his Neuralink business, uh, DARPA recently started a new challenge with brain stimulation technologies. Um, Facebook is working on, um, I think, an optical imaging headset that they want to use to translate imagined speech into text input. They're aiming for, I think, 100 words per minute, which is quite ambitious. Um, and a former, I think, Facebook executive is also now starting a company that deals with the very same Undertaking from a slightly different perspective, though. Um, so yeah, I think because of this, this renewed interest. Oh, and then Brian Johnson also invested hundred million dollars into um, a brain stimulation enterprise. So you think this stuff is going to blow up soon? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Very interesting. Uh, cool. So
0: I mean, we don't have to talk about uh, brain stuff the whole time. If there's, uh, are there are there other uh, sort of things going on in the world or with respect to technology or? you know, uh, brain science or anything that you're especially kind of fascinated by right now? Or,
1: um, we briefly talked about uh, a number of things earlier. Uh, I think we both share some mm-hmm. optimism about technology being able to increase individual autonomy. And you made a case for reducing the role of the state in everybody's lives or possibly even the role of hierarchical authority. I'm not quite sure how far you want to take your case.
0: Oh yeah, no, I don't think I have anything especially, you know, sophisticated to share. But that definitely seems to me to be the way things are moving. Yeah, uh, and I'm generally, you know, I'm generally, I think, uh, interested in that. You know, I think those are generally exciting uh, and favorable dynamics.
1: Yeah, um, I tend what, to have yeah. the viewpoint that technology does empower individuals more so than it would do, with the state apparatus. Um, just so, because when you put tools of disruption into everybody's hands, it gets increasingly more difficult to control them, right? Mm. Um, but I do still think that there's a role for a role for the state. Still, um, we talked prior mm. about the role of blockchain and cryptocurrencies um, and their potential to reorganize economic activity and also give a framework, a legal framework, for people to operate them, so that third-party enforcement of transactions via the state would not be as important anymore as it is right. now. Right. Uh, and I then made the point that I think that for uh, enforcement on the ground when it comes to material goods, for public good provision, welfare, and defense, the state must still have a very important function to fulfill. So I don't think that we'll move into um, a future where suddenly we are only dealing with individual transactions. Um, or spontaneously emerging group activity. Mm. I, sh- I still think there'll be some kind of superstructure on top of it um, that gives um, a rule set according to which people can organize activity. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I agree with that. But I think
0: that that sort of overarching structure is an increasingly kind of spontaneously organized complex kind of dynamic system, call it capitalism, call it, um, you know, what have you, but it seems to me that sort of global capitalist, uh, society is an increasingly complex organism that is increasingly out of the control of any of us, Right. that's the way that I kind of see it. And so there's this weird, I think there's this weird, um, sort of contradictory tendency going on right now where the, the overarching sort of economic systems in which we are embedded, are becoming increasingly complex and sort of beyond all human agency. Like our ability to actually manipulate the, the larger kind of uh, economic beast in which we are, you know, embedded is, uh, you know, slipping away more and more. And yet also the capacity to, in a, in a particular kind of micro uh, environment, in a particular, you know, um, situation the capacity to escape control from um, status quo institutions is also increasing. So it seems to me there's this kind of... Uh, and, and I think that's very hard for us to think about and talk about because it's basically humans losing agency more and more or like our grasp on the whole is becoming weaker and weaker. And yet our particular um, local ability to escape um, control is increasing. At least that's the way
1: that I see it. It's not... Right. So, with regards to control of the system um, and spontaneously emerging non-controllable acts of market, let's just say, um, I think that empirically we can't make the statement that markets are always emerging spontaneously. I think that with regards to um, transactions that are asymmetric in time... um, markets don't emerge spontaneously you do need some kind of institution that gives a framework for them to work in the first place as we talked about Mm -hmm. before this third party enforcement Um, with regards to controlling market activity as a whole and giving it you know some kind of structure I think that's like a feature not a bug in capitalism that it is meant to be without um, a means to put the like demon back in the box so to speak There's, there's no means that you could yeah Control markets in like a way that actually allows you to make it predictable, like the unpredictability yeah. is a feature of it right yes, right, and yeah. with regards to um, how you as a person fit in that um there is no structure to fit in like a market doesn't prescribe right. a value system in which you operate right right uh, and it doesn't give you. Um, like, this five-year plan on how it's going to develop. Mm. But it does give you a uh, a means or a set of means which allow you to self-express. So you can find a way of consumption that's in accordance with your preferences, and you can self-express in that manner. And if you happen to be part of a group that is, in some sense, put down, it's discriminated against or whatever, um, this creates, like, an extra market segment that can be targeted and then leveraged for them to self-express as well. So if you, I don't know, go back to the 40s, soft drink industry, um, Pepsi realized that they can't really win against Coke all that much, but they could leverage a new segment of the population by targeting, in this case, blacks as their main audience, right? So they would market specifically to an audience that they thought was undeserved, and hence could capture that market for themselves and rise up a little bit. Or like uh, Subaru in the nineties, I think, uh, realized that one means of capturing more, uh, well, a, a, a bigger market segment was to target specifically the LGBTQ community as an audience. So Subaru this, did that. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I didn't know that. Yeah. So if, Subaru is like a car for uh, LGBTQ people.
1: Yeah. So that really. Yeah. If you Google their um, advertisement campaign, it was it was quite clever. Um, but also quite
0: subtle, does that allowed. work like is it disproportionately bought are, 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 are Subarus disproportionately bought by LGBTq people
1: um I like it worked in the sense that there are pop cultural references to it yeah okay I'm not sure if it managed to crap that entire market segment It's kind of
0: like Volvos are like you know seen as like cars for hippies mm. right yeah.
1: um, but my point is that um, market segment uh, market Market societies sure. have this inbuilt tendency to not discriminate against any kind of set of values uh-huh. or means of life or whatever. And in consequence, they also have this tendency to go against preset structures for society, if that makes sense. Uh huh.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, another way to think about it is over time in human history, you see this sort of progressive unleashing of abstract intelligence. That's kind of the, the way I'm coming to see it. Mm. And so, you know, something like capitalism is uh, a, a kind of emerging complex system that is, you know, far smarter in a sense than any of us are. I mean, its, it's ability to sort of uh, sure. command and organize information yeah. is just uh, beyond superior to anything that our, you know, one human brain could possibly do. Um, and so that's a kind of super intelligence that emerges, mm-hmm. um, beyond out, out ahead of us and beyond mm-hmm. us, um, in which we then have to make our lives. Right. Um, but there, it's also generating, um, uh, superior technologies and tools whereby we can increase our own kind of individual, uh, intelligences right. and, and powers. And, and when I say individual, I don't just mean like the, you know, groups also small groups also. Yeah. So I think that. This helps to explain why there's, I think, a lot of confusion around, you know, like where the control is and where mm. where power actually lies, and and I think these things are very, very confusing to people. Yeah. Because in some sense, the social system, the the economic, you know, social political system is is sort of um, becoming beyond our control, and it is it it does function as a kind of alien force that a lot of people find oppressive. Uh, you know, I think in some reasonable way because they see you know economic dictates uh sort of uh bearing down on what governments can do and things like this and and they see capitalism as this sort of alien force that right. is oppressively uh telling us what we're a- allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do and that sucks right i can understand the why people find that uh horrifying and in some sense it is it's extremely brutal in some sense um but in another sense it's because it's just it's literally more intelligent than we are. <laughs> and we are increasingly living in this, um, kind of complex modern world in which intelligence, like just abstract intelligence as pow- it, like is power itself. Mm-hmm. And wherever there is, um, you know, superiorities in abstract intelligence, there goes the power. But, um, and that's just kind of the, like in some sense, you can see that as sort of the nature of, um, of a complex open system, as such. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not like a, it's not a, a, an arbitrary political form that's been imposed on us that we could easily change. It's like, this is the, this is sort of the nature of reality
1: in some sense. Right. I think that we agree on the realization, um, that capitalism is fundamentally uncontrolled, you know, as its nature and that hence any kind of structure couldn't be imposed on it without making it well, not capitalism. The thing where I'm not entirely sure if I follow is you saying that people feel oppressed by capitalism not allowing them to do what they want to do. Did I get that right? I think that's how a lot of people say it. Yeah. How would that realize? Well, I, I, I mean, just how mean would that makes of a thing. I don't
0: think it's ultimately coherent, but I think I'm just saying this is basically the the standard kind of left wing critique of capitalism, right? That like as a, you know, as, as a community of people, whether it be a nation or a city or whatever, mm-hmm. we should be able to democratically decide how to distribute the money, you sure. know, but when we try to do that, oh man, capitalism gets in the way because, you know, cap- capital, f- capital flight or, you know, the bond markets constrain us or, you know, these, these, these sure. ways that da- that, capitalism, uh, disciplines the things we might choose to do, um, so a lot of people see that as a kind of alien, oppressive right. disciplinary force that should be opposed or objected to morally or, or politically. Um, and I think on in a very simple um, sense, it's understandable mm-hmm. because it is an alien disciplinary force that is smarter than us. It, like, it is our master in some sense. But I think what I... Um, so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to anti-capitalism. And in some sense, I, I am an anti-capitalist, and I have been for a while. In the, Just in the sense that, you know, I look at... You know, you look out at the, the sort of modern world today, and and when you see sort of um, abstract systems right. uh, doing things to the people around you that are brutal, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it you're sort of inhumane to not have some sort of at least initial kind of visceral objection to that. Sure. Um, and I don't want to throw that out. Um, and okay. yet, my what I'm what my views are kind of changing on, or what I'm starting to sort of update a little bit about right. is um, just how how you see what the nature of capitalism is Mm -hmm. and i think it makes a world of difference of whether you think it's a a kind of like uh human political system that once upon a time was sort of like created and imposed right um uh which uh makes it easy to see it as an injustice and makes it easy to see it as something that we should try to modify together as humans Um, But it's increasingly clear to me anyway, that that, that's simply is not that (laughs) capitalism is not like a a one among other sort of uh, political economic systems that you can just sort of uh, change at will. It's sort of it's an abstract, emergent phenomenon that is brutal for sure. But it's it's emerging uh, because it's smarter than us and something something smarter than us is is escaping from our control. And when you see it that way, your attitude towards it uh, has to fundamentally shift, I think.
1: Well, a lot of what you said resonated, and I agree with it. I think when you at the very end said that it mm. escaped our control, um, I think it never was under the control of humans, sure. right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's its feature. Um, with regards to the brutality of it and the disciplinary force of capitalism with people pursuing their own self-interest or the best interest of the corporation they're supposed to represent or interests of the community they're part of, um, I think you know that's just a fairly human drive. It's not necessarily something that's exclusive to capitalism. People will be interested mm-hmm. in whatever their preferences are, regardless of the economic forms of organization they find themselves in. It's just that in the, if there's a presumption of some kind of common good, which is shared by a, a group that they feel aligned to a political ideology, um, then this common good could be, from their point of view, be imposed on others. But it would be a violation of this one person's right to self-determination, regardless of whether it's in capitalism or in other economic forms of organization. So that is something that's not capitalism exclusive. And with regards to the brutality of the system, um, I think that is a point which is valid in the sense that any system which allows people to freely act, and it doesn't really have to be capitalism either, um, will allow them to accrue benefits in an uneven manner because people have an uneven set of skills. So, completely independent of the question of whether uh, wealth distribution and capitalism reflects any kind of uh, you know inherent skill differences, um, in any system it makes sense to assume that if a is more intelligent than B, then A will be more successful in their endeavors and right. accrue more wealth in you know, whatever manner, unless it's constrained by restriction on freedom. Um, and the Matthew principle that in general, if somebody's successful at doing something, the likelihood of them being successful at something else is also increased, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And the opposite holds as well if somebody mm-hmm. fails at something, well, the relative possibility of them in something else has increased as well, right so there yeah. is some kind of divergence um, in possible outcomes that could be um, achieved by any one person and there I feel is um, the reason for why a welfare system is a very sensible position to take, like, no matter what economic wealth organization you prefer so right. in general, I think my politics could be summed up in just saying like markets for wealth maximization, but then uh, redistribution for welfare i think that's very
0: uh very reasonable hmm. uh, solution to complex problems i think um one thing i would just backtrack a little bit too when you were saying uh that that capitalism has sort of never been in our control i think you're you're totally right i think yeah. what i was kind of trying to get at is that what you do i think see in uh human history is just a progressive um Increase in abstract intelligence that uh, seems to kind of represent like something something we have tried to control and that progressively escapes our control, which is not capitalism per se, but um, like in pre-modern societies, mm-hmm. you know you have all of these sort of uh, systems and rituals to kind of keep things contained, to keep a lid on everything, sort of. You um, mean uh, with belief lot, systems? Um, I mean, in, 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 uh, in many ways, I think, yeah. I think um, belief systems, but also just social behaviors. Right. Um, so you had a narrative
1: so or a sort of well societal ritual that people generally followed, with, which gave structure to things, right? Yeah, in many, in many different dimensions. But, yeah. but wasn't that in part possible because minorities were heavily discriminated against? So was that societal narrative not just upheld by people who have different lifestyles different belief systems being marginalized um no because i'm i'm, I'm talking sort
0: of even before the emergence of complex modern uh society okay like e- yeah, even before kind of complex civilizations let's say okay. like pre-modern civilization so i'm like you know, what time period are we talking about? uh no i'm saying like let's say for all of human history uh, before, you know, like 1500 or whatever. Okay. Um, not that there's any clean break. All I'm saying is that progressively, over time, mm-hmm. um, most of human history uh, in, it, it involves a lot of different overlapping ways in which communities of people are trying to keep a lid on many things, sure. right? So, like, keeping stable. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so it, you know, if you look at sort of like pre modern tribal communities, right. um, you know, they're actually, they can be very violent across groups. But within groups, they're often more egalitarian. Sure. Um, And they they are able to enforce that egalitarianism through um, pretty brutal kinds of uh, self con- self control group control mechanisms yeah. right so yeah. that's all I'm re- so that's all I'm really getting at things like that like really brutal sort of internal yeah. um, egalitarian enforcement well, that's kind of and what I'm saying right? religion and taboos and these sorts of things but like, my, my, I think we yeah. agree
1: that in order to make this happen it had to be quite brutal it had to be quite stringent and there was no deviation from norms allowed because you had to keep the group together this is true right. in uh, hunter gatherer societies and also like in post agricultural early states yeah is not really any kind of ways that you could have a pluralism, a cultural or otherwise, uh, without endangering that narrative that everybody follows. Right, but that is and what that, happens over time. Sure, sure. Uh, but like when you had the emergence of capitalism, that immense boom of technological innovation following the Industrial Revolution, you had such uh, increase in constant upheavals in terms of how things are done and what technology is available, yeah. that suddenly all these narratives break down. You had... In accordance with that, the um, increasing lack of belief in the population and some kind of deity organizing things, and it was more and more revealed that actually, well, things are not really all that predictable, um, things are essentially up for grabs, right? Mm. And there's no destination that's preordained that everybody's working towards, and there's also no necessarily objective meaning to anything we're doing. So that means that suddenly like pluralism, becomes a bit more, um, well, it becomes more possible because the the foundation for any kind of grand narrative is destroyed. Sure. Right.
0: Sure. Yeah, for sure. So uh, all I was trying to say before is that, um, uh, there's a way of seeing the entire stretch of human history as this effort to kind of keep contained this sort of abstract danger um, that contemporary global capitalism is kind of um, coming to fruition but right. um, even with abstract danger meaning it meaning change. it meaning it seems to me that if the one way to read history is that um, pre-modern social forms have this sort of suspicion this sort of vague awareness that abstract intelligence is like creative abstract intelligence so basically sure. not capitalism as a as a system so much as like the basic kind of cultural activity of like entrepreneur, like productive creative entrepreneurship. Like anyone who sort of looks at a situation says, how can I creatively uh, improve this? Sure. um, Is inherently going to be breaking some rules. There's an inherent danger to that. Right. So my point is like, it seems to me that humans have always sort of seen, okay, this is really powerful and useful thing that we can do. Mm. but, But, but humans have always seen that if, and when that sort of abstract creative intelligence uh, if it were to get loose beyond a certain degree, right. everything would be uh, ruined, and it would be a, it'd be a massive catastrophe. I mean, right. I see most of the history of human religions yeah. as these sort of um, containment devices right. uh, to basically forestall the the horror the horrible catastrophic situation in which this productive abstract intelligence uh, escapes all social bonds. So that's all I was saying before is right. that I see human history as this sort of progressive escape. I of abstract intelligence, and I, right now I think that we are living through the most sort of um, incredible kind of uh, moment of that escape, because mm-hmm. now sort of global capitalism is this kind of um, completely uncontainable uh, kind of abstract intelligence that is, uh, f- you know, once and for all, fully sort of beyond any possible grasp. I is think what I think. can
1: tie it together what you said. Great, what I'll let I you have the last word
0: actually, because I know you need to get on to do your thing. So uh, why don't you why don't you go ahead and. Uh, Bring us on, right? How are you? So um,
1: are. I think one very important principle of capitalism is the concept of creative destruction, which ties back to what you were mm-hmm. saying: is For that sure. when you create something new, you are also endangering the order as is, right? And that is a destructive process. And in general, I think as individuals, but also as societies, we're always on the border between. Well, ideally, we are on the border between chaos and order. If we are. Just completely on the order side of things, we have complete stagnation, right? Nothing ever changes, but there's no growth, there's no development, Mm -hmm. um, which is ultimately not really where you want to be because you want things to get better, right? You want to grow. Um, And then you have to move closer to like that chaos dimension, right? But as you do, as you get closer to chaos, you're also endangering something that is working quite well, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, order has come to be through a long period of testing things out both as individuals and as societies at large. So you have to tread carefully and be very gradual in your progression towards chaos. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's a thing worth doing. I think with capitalism, what we see is a greater um, rate of progression towards chaos because chaos is embraced a bit more. I think that's fundamentally a good thing. If there's still a structure that can give rules to how it operates, So I think that democracies... Uh, and capitalism have to work in accordance with each other and just make sure that none of the two forces destroys the other one. I think they are reliant on each other. And yeah, as we talked about before, I think that liberal democracies have proved empirically historically to be one of the most stable forms of organizing that rule set according to which a market could operate. Um, and that ties back to the representatives being Made part of the market structure, so their failing or success in in enacting policies is something that directly impacts their revenue as well. So they have this personal incentive to make sure that whatever they do in terms of giving rules for the market impacts the market in a good way in the long run.
0: Perfect, uh, right. perfect way to end a uh, cool. really <laughs> excellent and super interesting weird day i've had my i've had i've had like really bright lights flashing in my eyes for uh a fairly long time Hmm. you have all kinds of uh very rich data about my brain in your computer now yes i do uh and then we just had an awesome conversation thank you so much this is really fun. thank you very
1: much fun.
0: (laughs) cheers cool i hope you enjoyed this oh yeah definitely definitely all right awesome i'll just uh stop it